0: Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to keep up with the literature, but you're too excited. It's autumn! Woohoo! Oh, wait, it's cold, wet, and Christmas is still many months away. At least we have Conkers. Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back,
1: fantastic listeners, to another Journal Spotting Roundup.
0: Autumn has arrived like a plonk on a plate. It's bleak and wet outside. And unless you're a big fan of conkers, which I unashamedly am, by the way, then there really isn't much to entice you into the outside world right now. That and apparently there is a pesky virus on the loose. Yes, still. So wrap up, put your feet up, get a steaming cup of hot chocolate on the go or. If you happen to have bowel cancer, we'd recommend coffee, but more on that later. Turn the volume up to level 11. Actually don't, because noise pollution is more harmful than we realise, but more on that later too. And listen to your good old powers at Journal Spotting HQ doing the hard work for you. John, what else have we got coming up? Arnie, it's
1: great to be back. We're back on the microphone to review the hottest articles that we think you should know about. We're going to cover all sorts from coffee and cancer, turmeric lattes for arthritis, antiplatelets and colchicine for the coronaries, SGLT2 inhibitors for everyone, I think, uh, death by pollution, and lots, lots more. These are all going to be dished up in our journal bite format. And back to help us navigate the wild west of evidence-based medicine with calm, clarity, and humor are our returning journal spotters, Katya and Anilad. Feels like uh, it's been a while since we've all been back together. Katia and Analan, nice to see you. Uh, What have you guys been up to since we last uh, caught up?
2: Thanks, John. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's been, been a while. I'm Dr. Katia Florman, and probably like quite a few others out there, I have been fluctuating between a very enthusiastic wedding planning session and then just putting everything on hold as the dreaded corona news worsens and worsens. I think, Analan, you had a particularly innovative approach to this dilemma facing some of us today do you want to share uh, yeah so
3: <laughs> always recommend getting married in the hospital chapel uh, particularly at st thomas's a beautiful location and you always get a, a thumbs up or approval from your local politician it seems That's uh, a very so good to hi, do it. hi everyone i'm analan now. i've mainly been preoccupied with the process of moving home uh, I have a very daunting task of dismantling and reassembling our IKEA furniture. Uh, to add to the pressure, my wife has placed bets with our friends on whether I'll be successful in doing it or not. Based on previous attempts, the odds are definitely stacked against me.
0: know <laughs> <laughs> how you feel, mate. Actually, um, listeners, we'll put a, a little thing in the show notes to guide you to wherever you want to see pictures of Anna and getting married in all their glory. <laughs> was, it, was it on the BBC or Sky or something like that?
3: Uh, it's covered in quite a lot of uh, news outlets, including Australia, India, wow. Sri Lanka. Really? It must
2: have <laughs> been such a good news story. It, made, it must have made so many people so happy to see. Yeah, we
3: we did a few. Uh, ra- well, we did a radio for ITV News, Sky News. Oh, I missed all um, of
0: this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: I, I did keep it very quiet when I was working with Barney. Very quiet. I only found out <laughs> yeah. weeks later with
0: somebody who <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sent it along. Oh. Well, well, I am Dr Barnaby Hirons, and slightly more boringly, I've been busy revising for an exam, which I had the other day, and it was bloody um, hard. Essentially, I'll let you know if I pass listeners, if I fail, this is probably the last you'll hear of it. Apart from that, House Hirons is slowly preparing for the impending arrival of Rugrat number two, so apologise if I'm otherwise engaged when it comes to next month's roundup.
1: Barney's sitting an exam and you're about to have your second child, you are a busy, busy man. Uh, I'm Dr. Jonathan Hudson, and I'm significantly less busy as I am a student again. Uh, I'm doing a master's in public health, and unfortunately, my Freshers' Week experience was slightly different from the first time, less kind of vodka revs and more Zoom calls with cups of tea in my living room. So for nostalgia's sake, I occasionally shout, down it fresher, in my head and finish the tea in one, just to, (laughs) you know, spice things up.
0: There is a, a small window into your past life there, John, um, <laughs> a bullying older students. <laughs> let's uh, let's crack on with the roundup.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Barney, I think you're up. You've spotted a headline study from a drug which is not always at the very front of the drug cupboard. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, I do indeed. So um, I'm going to delve into the mysterious world of culture scene. Culture scene. I, what do we use it for? It's been around forever but I have only ever prescribed it for things like gout and pericarditis. However, as an anti-inflammatory with few of the nasty or even deadly side effects which NSAIDs can have, I've always wondered if we should be using it more and it should be used elsewhere. The other background to what I'm gonna talk about is that a lot of ischemic heart disease is thought to be related to underlying systemic inflammation. So controlling this could reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease in theory. Welcome the COLCOT trial, C-O-L-C-O-T, which came out at the end of 2019. This was a randomized controlled trial with just shy of 5,000 post-MI patients, split into colchicine or not. Here, colchicine appeared to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, especially stroke and unstable angina. Boom, colchicine stock prices start to rise. Next up, came the Lodo Co trial. Lodo K. Definitely sounds like a Snoop Dogg song.
2: Uh, or Ricky Martin? Is that closer?
0: Linda yeah, no, you're ah,
2: right. Lodo. <laughs> I,
0: I hear he actually did the advertising for the trial. <laughs> on, on that note, slight digression, apologies. I've got a couple of totally irrelevant facts about Snoop Dogg, which I recently acquired. So um, I'm, I'm not going to even wait for you to allow me. I'm just going to crack on. One is that I saw him on TV advertising Just Eat yesterday and two, I just found out he has a new cookbook called From Crook to Cook. Genuinely. Anyway, in LodoCo, that's L-O-D-O-C-O, they split 500 odd patients with a stable coronary artery disease into colchitine or not. Low-dose colchitine did lead to a reduced risk of cardiovascular events, especially ACS. However there were quite a few issues with the trial, including lack of blinding, small numbers, and no control arm. So, along came LODOCO2, the low-dose colchicine trial 2, published this month in the New England Journal of Medicine. Same inclusion criteria, i.e. participants with stable coronary artery disease, but 10 times bigger with over 5,000 patients, and it was a randomized controlled trial. But what did it show? Their primary endpoint, a composite of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, and the need for coronary revascularization, occurred in 6.8% of the colchitine group and 9.6% of the placebo group. This gave a significant hazard ratio of 0.69. There was no significant difference in side effects, including diarrhea. Sounds marvellous. But the criticism has targeted a key fact. There was also no difference in either cardiovascular or all-cause mortality. So this data tells us that low-dose colchicine will not make our diabetic smoking hypertensive patients live longer, but will reduce their overall risk of cardiovascular events. There are few risks involved, and it's cheap. Cheap and somewhat effective, I suspect the guidance is likely to change based on this.
2: Thanks Barney, that was really interesting. In the theme of vascular paths, can I take us back to the most talked about drugs of 2019? I mean, actually, can anyone remember anything about 2019? Seems so long ago.
0: Yeah, 2019 when uh, we still thought that Trump was the worst thing that could happen to the world, and we were only half right.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Any guesses of the, the, the aforementioned drugs?
1: Surely it was hydroxychloroquine.
2: No, okay, I'll tell you, SGLT2 inhibitors, anyone remember those? They are floating back down the river, if they ever went away. If you've heard of the DAPA-HF and the Credence trial, then these two studies, which I found in the New England Journal of Medicine this month, are right up your street. Whilst Credence proved the renal protective effect of SGLT2 inhibitors, in patients with type two diabetes. The straightforwardly named dapagliflozin in patients with chronic kidney disease by Hirspinka-Al has shown that dapagliflozin can we call it DAPA? It's, it's a bit lengthy, of reduces the risk of worsening. <laughs> I'm just gonna do it. Uh, yeah, DAPA reduces the risk of worsening CKD in patients with or without type two diabetes. So they randomized over 2,000 patients to DAPA or placebo, and over a median of 2.4 years, they found that the risk of a primary event, and they defined this as a sustained decline in EGFR of at least 50%, development of end-stage kidney disease or death from renal causes. So the risk of a primary event was reduced by 39% in the DAPA group, and the number no- needed to treat was only 19 And then the risk of a composite of all three of those events reduced by 44%. So I think these are quite startling results. I mean, the follow-up was only 2.4 years, but they actually had to stop the trial early because of such favorable outcomes. Another similar study, also in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is called Cardiovascular and Renal Outcomes with Empagliflozin in Heart Failure, by Packer et al., has also broadened the evidence for EMPA, and heart failure by looking at patients with a higher risk of a serious heart failure event than in previous studies. So they defined these high-risk patients as those with a lower ejection fraction and a higher ProBNP. So they had a medium follow-up of only 16 months, but there were almost 4,000 patients included, and this trial found that the combined risk of death or hospitalisation from heart failure was reduced by 25%. And actually, most of this reduction came from that of reduced admissions for heart failure. and That was a 31% reduction. I should also add that in both studies, patients were only included if they already took standard therapy for CKD, such as an ACE inhibitor or ARB, or standard therapy for heart failure already.
3: Wow, this uh, sounds like pretty practice changing for medics.
2: You would think, yes, Analan. I mean, currently, for NICE, by NICE, they're only recommended for those with type 2 diabetes. And this is as an add-on or as an alternative first line to metformin. And NICE advises not to give them if EGFR is less than 60. So it may be a little while to go before they are on all the CKD scripts. But ultimately, yes, despite the fact that both these studies were industry-funded, I have to say that, I think we will be seeing more and more Flozins, if anyone's going to follow me on that one, as an add-on therapy in the outpatient setting. As hospital medics, we need to remember that when we see them on the prescription record, it's prudent um, to know some of their common side effects. The most common one is genital infections, and there was an increased amount seen in the empagliflozin study. Another big one is euglycemic ketoacidosis. So we're always told to hold the SGLT2 inhibitor when admitting an acutely unwell patient to hospital,
0: I love it. I think they, you know, they were like the big success of last year, and they keep growing, don't they? And even more things you have seen them people using them in liver disease and all sorts. I think um, go on SGLTs. <laughs>
1: so from exactly. So from new and exciting therapies to new and unfamiliar therapies, I'm going to talk about coffee. It's uh, rarely mentioned as part of the treatment plan, unless that treatment plan is for the knackered medical registrar who's on their fifth night shift and has a two-year-old at home. But this might be changing. This study in JAMA oncology is really interesting and might be the first step to recommending coffee for patients with advanced colorectal cancer. However you like your coffee, it may have some useful anti-cancer effects thanks to its antioxidant effect, insulin sensitization, and direct antineoplastic properties. Based on some earlier epidemiological work, the authors wanted to know whether drinking more coffee every day was associated with living longer in patients who had colorectal cancer that was unresectable, locally advanced, or metastatic. So this was a prospective study done via diet questionnaires, Higher coffee consumption was associated with a statistically significant improvement in both overall survival and progression-free survival. One cup per day increment corresponded to a 5% lower risk of progression of cancer and a 7% lower risk of death, with a higher median survival in those that drank greater than or equal to four cups of coffee per day versus non-coffee drinkers. So higher median survival of 39 months versus 31 months. So... If you drink more coffee and you have advanced colorectal cancer, you live a bit longer. I want to clarify some important points about the results. The findings were consistent when they controlled for potential confounding factors and prognostic variables. They even looked at whether non-dairy sweeteners and creamer could be a confounder, and the effect was observable even if you drank decaffeinated coffee. So there are some limitations. There could be a confounding factor that they did not capture in the study. For example, coffee drinkers being more active, having better sleep habits, or their employment status and they didn't capture coffee habits before the diagnosis of cancer. Therefore, you don't know whether there has actually been a change in the coffee drinking habits in the last few months, and, it is a, and this is a significant adjustment that might be causing the
0: effect. So what do you think, John? Coffee machines in the chemotherapy suites? Um, I actually like the idea of Aeropress specialist physios. That's my, uh, that's my idea for it to go out there.
1: <laughs> yeah, genius. There's definitely a good quip in that. Uh, well, I think as a possible treatment, coffee is cheap and has practical appeal. But before being able to recommend it fully, further research and a randomised intervention trial is needed. In the meantime, this study provides some reassurance to colorectal cancer patients who drink lots of coffee. And this will hopefully brew a further trial.
2: No, you had to do that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Again, so sel two inhibitors and coffee. Basically, if everyone just took those two things, they're probably going to live forever, it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so continuing the theme of food and drink, we all know that turmeric
3: is an essential ingredient for a high quality curry. And if you don't, I can vouch that it is. To add to the list of life lessons on this month's roundup, it's also impossible to wash out of your clothes.
2: Oh, I, d- I didn't know that, actually. So apart from one of the weapons in your domestic arsenal, Analan, are there any other uses for it?
3: Uh, well, it has been used for medicinal purposes in Ayurvedic medicine and traditional Chinese medicine, for sp- specifically to treat arthritis. The Annals of Internal Medicine report a 12-weeks, single-centre, randomised, placebo-controlled clinical trial that was carried out in southern Tasmania. They recruited 70 participants and randomly assigned them to receive either two 500-milligram capsules of turmeric once a day or placebo once a day. All participants had baseline clinical examination, ultrasound, knee x-ray, and MRI of the affected knee. The primary outcome was change in knee pain and change in knee effusion synovitis volume based on MRI findings. Other measured outcomes included functions such as walking, climbing stairs, and weight bearing. The study showed a statistically significant reduction in knee pain, but no difference in function or effusion synovitis volume. Although there is no objective evidence it reduces disease progression, the study clearly demonstrates an improvement in the management of symptoms. As we're increasingly managing chronic conditions, with the primary complaints of these conditions being pain, it's useful to know that there are more evidence-based treatment options outside our typical scope of practice. As clinicians, we turn our nose up at the idea of herbal remedies. I know I've been guilty of that. But with this new information, I would definitely consider natural remedies in the future as long as the evidence is there for, of course.
2: Oh, th- thanks Analan, that's, that's really interesting. I wonder if they actually suffer less arthritic pain in, in places where they eat a lot of turmeric, like India, or maybe places where they drink a lot of turmeric lattes, like hackney. Any <laughs> end like of that?
0: That's, again, another study. There we go. It's a little present for your Journal Spotter listeners. So that's what they could do. I
2: actually have a
0: rheumatology colleague who, who I spoke to a while ago about this. He, he works in a tertiary center and he informs them that they do suggest turmeric to some patients. Of course, you have to have to pick the ones maybe if things like NSAIDs are contraindicated. So um, mm. it's interesting, isn't it? I like the idea of it. Anyway, uh, away from rheumatology and back onto the diabetes front. I think Anything to make diabetes treatment and compliance easier must be a good thing. The only problem is that it means simple-minded medics like, well, me, have to keep up with the new names and brands of all the insulins and oral medications. So keep up, listeners, this is what's coming. The New England Journal of Medicine published once-weekly insulin for type 2 diabetes without previous insulin treatment this month. This was a smallish RCT, which looked at 247 patients with known type 2 diabetes, not controlled on oral medication. It split them into the once-weekly ICODEC, or ICODEC, I'm not sure how it is, I-C-O-D-E-C insulin group. They also received placebo injections for the rest of the week, and once-daily Glargine group. There was no significant difference between the HbA1c lowering ability of either of these two groups and the side effect profile, especially hypoglycemic attacks, was very similar. Good news, as fewer injections must be a good thing, right? However, I am just waiting for the inevitable mistakes where patients are given too high or too many doses and the issues of prolonged hypoglycemia become present. But that's just me being negative. I'm sure there are plenty of diabetics out there who will be very keen to start this. Take-homes, remember, hycodec insulin is once a week, and it's coming to a drug chart near you soon.
2: So listeners, I'm going to take you from the management of chronic diseases into something a little bit more acute. I was pretty surprised to see the results of this Canadian study about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, about as acute as it comes, in JAMA this month. Grunau et al. cohorted almost 28,000 patients who suffered out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and they compared those who received on-scene resuscitation with those who were transported to hospital during the arrest. There was, in fact, a significant improvement in survival with the on-scene resuscitation of 8.5% compared to 4% for those who were transferred as well as an increased chance of favourable neurological outcome for survivors in the on-scene group. I was surprised by this, as those who were chosen for intra-rest transport actually had more favourable characteristics for survival than those who stayed on the scene.
0: Really? That's that's fascinating, isn't it? Um, So, any any idea why, Katia?
2: Well, the authors do postulate a few possible um, explanations. For example, while negotiating transport and physically moving the patient, They thought perhaps the quality of chest compressions and timing of defibrillation and say drug delivery might have been impaired, which I'm sure everyone can imagine. They also noted that the timing of the decision to transfer to hospital might have played a big part in the outcome. Those intra-arrest transport patients were actually treated with a significantly longer period of resuscitation in total, a median of 10 minutes longer. And they thought that might contribute to their ultimately worse outcomes.
0: Yeah, so it makes sense. Um, anything we can actually take away from this in practice?
2: Yeah, difficult to say. I mean, as an observational cohort study with data collected between 2011 and 2015 at 10 different North American sites, it may be a little bit difficult to generalize to the UK in 2020. But given the unlikeliness of an RCT looking into this topic, if you can even imagine that it may be the best that we have for now. It is important to note however that of the patients who received intra-arrest transport after 30 minutes and survived actually two-thirds of those were successfully resuscitated i.e they obtained ROSC prior to their hospital arrival which does slightly beg the question of whether you can extrapolate anything particularly useful about the quality of sort of in-hospital resuscitation versus on scene when the results actually have such a confounding feature.
3: Oh, that's really interesting. Thanks, Katia. Moving away from uh, life or death, but still a topic that's considered a do not miss diagnosis. I'm going to talk about giant cell arteritis. Making the diagnosis can be difficult and the treatment is high dose steroids, which carries its risks, as we heard in last month's roundup. JAMA Internal Medicine reports a meta-analysis which included only clinical trials and observational studies. And these only use temporal artery biopsies, imaging, or clinical diagnoses as the reference standard for giant cell arteritis, or GCA. Searching journals from December 1940 to April 2020, 68 studies fulfilled their selection criteria, which included 14,037 participants. 4,277 of which were classified as having GCA. Looking at each symptom, examination finding, and blood test result, they calculated the likelihood ratio of leading to an accurate diagnosis of GCA. Now, I can't list all the findings in this podcast, but we'll outline the main learning points. On symptoms alone, limb claudication, jaw claudication, and previous diagnosis of polymyalgia rheumatica had a significantly positive likelihood ratio. On clinical examination, temporal artery thickening, temporal artery loss of pulse, and anterior ischemic optic neuropathy also had a significantly positive likelihood ratio. Finally, an ESR over 60 or platelets over 400 had a significantly positive likelihood ratio, whereas CRP had a negative likelihood ratio. Now, I would encourage listeners to have a look at the excellent summary tables in table two and table three of this manuscript. In addition to the positive likelihood findings, I was was surprised to read about the irrelevant findings. Headache, including temporal headache, did not have a significantly positive likelihood ratio, and neither did scalp tenderness. From my own experience, these two features are considered the red flags for GCA, but clearly are not as clinically significant as we previously thought.
0: That's interesting, isn't it? Especially as, you know, throughout medical school, it's all about people combing their hair and getting pain and mm. um, that sort of headache, you know, temporal headaches. There we go. Thanks, Adam. No, that's really useful. That's good to know. I'm going to have a short digression away from clinical medicine, if you'll allow me, folks. And I'm going to talk about the environment. Yes, we all know it's in trouble. And the UK is going to be a flooded but dusty desert at the going rate. But I want to briefly cover a report by the European Environmental Agency called Healthy Environment, Healthy Lives. They use data from a 2016 WHO investigation and assess the impact of pollution on the health of Europe. So quick question, guys. Across Europe, what percentage of deaths are attributable to pollution? Any ideas?
2: 10%.
0: Yeah, I was going
3: to go 10%,
0: 9%. Pre-Brexit or post-Brexit? Oh, there we go. Good question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think you could say pre-Trump or post-Trump. Well, yeah. you, you know what guys, you're actually in the right, right ballpark. About 13% of all deaths in Europe can be attributable to pollution, based on these, their data. This ranges from about 9% in Norway and Iceland to 23% in Albania and 27% in Bosnia. The UK sits around 12%. The top types of pollution which affect human health. Number one, of course, air pollution. This causes some 26,000 premature deaths annually across Europe, despite our attempts to reduce it. Next up, a surprise for some. Noise pollution is estimated to cause some 12,000 premature deaths per year and 48,000 new cases of ischemic heart disease. Then, climate change, heatwaves in particular. With current global warming predictions, deaths from heatwaves will reach about 130,000 a year. Then there were things like exposure to chemicals, uh, environmental antibiotics and water pollution, which on the whole isn't bad in Europe. Unsurprisingly, those from a lower socioeconomic background are by far the hardest hit for numerous reasons. Now, I've not gone into the intricacies of each of the studies they've used or how they have reached causality from, well, mostly observational data, but even if the figures are in the right ballpark, then they really are quite eye-opening.
1: I just wanted to ask, Bonnie. obviously we can't go into all the data, but noise pollution causing all the premature deaths? What's the, what's the mechanism? Yeah, they think
0: it's mostly cardiovascular disease. And there was this idea about, well, one of the theories is actually the noise pollution is you know, causing stress, lack of sleep, higher blood pressure, that sort of thing. And they have found real sort of yeah, quite clear associations yeah, with that. So, yeah, but I had no idea it was causing such an issue. So what about solutions? None are particularly easy, as you can imagine. Big change is costly. And the easiest way to get money is through consumerism and spending, which inevitably causes more pollution. Green spaces in urban areas are pushed because they provide a triple win. Less pollution, better wellbeing for inhabitants, and increased biodiversity. But whose houses do you knock down to create the spaces? What to take from this journal bite? People be aware that pollution kills, and it's not just diesel fumes which cause it. As medics, many of whom work in highly environmentally inefficient organizations, we have a duty to promote well-being, push our organizations to be more environmentally friendly, and improve the lives of our patients. Turn down your music. Turn down your bloody music. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I was thinking
0: maybe you could actually um, actually get causality with noise. And I was thinking maybe you could get a human or lots of humans and put them in a room with like really loud death metal for about five to 10 years and then get another one where you just, they just have like whale sounds and stuff like that. But I just, I don't know if they're going to get the funding for that or the ethics.
3: (laughs) Maybe
1: I'm not
0: sure about the ethics behind that either. Ethics (laughs) might be, might be the doubt. You never know. (laughs)
1: Now, slightly tangentially from pollution, we're going to talk about breathlessness, specifically breathlessness in severe COPD, which as we all know is disabling and really difficult to treat. There are non-pharmacological methods and pulmonary rehab, And then you've got opioids, which for years have been recommended for refractory breathlessness in severe COPD. But as usual with quote, things we've been doing for a while, there is not a huge amount of evidence to support this practice. So take a deep breath. It's time for the Mordyke study. Taken at face value, this result could take your breath away. It's an RCT that randomized 124 patients with severe COPD and refractory breathlessness to receive either placebo or 10 milligrams twice a day of sustained-released morphine. They showed that morphine improved the COPD assessment score significantly with no change in the arterial carbon dioxide of patients with no serious side effects. So you could read this and think, great, there we have it. Evidence that low-dose morphine improves chronic breathlessness in severe COPD. Next paper. But don't hold your breath. We need to clear the air a little bit. Things aren't quite that obvious, and that's where journal spotting comes in. So the trial assessed the COPD assessment test in patients. It's a common eight-item questionnaire designed to measure the effect of COPD on a person's life. Cough, phlegm, chest tightness, few other symptoms are each scored from zero to five. They only found a very small difference in the score between the two groups. It was 2.18. And they even moved the threshold lower in their analysis to be between two and three to make it a significant study. They did this when they struggled to recruit patients for the study. So they basically moved the goalposts a little bit. Also, they had to expand the trial to include patients with moderate COPD because they were struggling to recruit patients with severe COPD. We know that in this cohort, this is a group that is less likely to benefit from opioids as breathlessness may be less of an issue. The study also failed to find any benefits in functional performance, care dependency, and breathlessness scores. There was an improvement in mean breathlessness with opioid use in patients with severe dyspnea, which was an MRC grade greater than or equal to three. So everyone exhale. The breathing puns and song title references are almost over. This study is not going to change my practice, but it will make me think carefully about what studies I'm reading and how they are designed. Opioids remain a useful pharmacological intervention for patients who have refractory severe breathlessness after oxygen, handheld fans and pulmonary rehabilitation. And this study provides a small amount of evidence and a bit of reassuring safety data to support this pre-existing practice.
0: Uh, spoken like a true respiratory registrar blocum. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so moving from the lungs to the heart, very far away from each other anatomically, I think it's reasonable to say that the majority of presentations to hospitals are chest pains, which require us to identify those who have acute coronary syndrome and to treat them appropriately. Whenever we think of treatment for ACS, we all reel off dual antiplatelet. But which antiplatelets would you choose?
0: I'll okay, go if you like, guys. Well, I mean, uh, you know, based on the previous articles we've covered, aspirin and ticagrelor uh, for most, but possibly clopidogrel in the elderly or those at increased risk of bleeding.
3: Well, you're right. Aspirin is the standard go-to drug. Uh, but its antiplatelet companion seems to vary between trusts and even clinicians. Ticagrelor and prasugrel have been shown to provide more prompt, potent and consistent platelet inhibition than the historically used clopidogrel, but they have also been associated with an increased risk of bleeding. This is particularly relevant when one third of patients with ACS are over 75 years old and this cohort are generally at higher risk of bleeding. This is especially relevant for prasugrel as a standard maintenance dose of 10 milligrams once a day has shown a statistically significantly higher risk of bleeding among this cohort in previous RCTs. In this month's Annals of Internal Medicine, a multi-centre, randomised, open-label, phase 4 trial pit prasugrel and ticagrelor against one another. A total of 3,997 patients with ACS, including STEMI, NSTEMI or unstable angina, were randomly assigned to either treatment arm. Ticagrelor, 180 milligrams loading with 90 milligrams BD maintenance, or Prasugrel 60 milligrams loading with 10 milligrams maintenance once a day, unless they were over 75 years old or less than 60 kilograms. Then it was 5 milligrams once a day maintenance dose. The endpoint was composite of death, myocardial infarction, or stroke at 12 months. When comparing Ticagril and reduced maintenance dose Prazagril, efficacy in terms of endpoint was similar. There was a statistically lower risk of ischemic complications one year after enrollment compared to ticagrelor. However, there was a statistically higher risk of all classifications of bleeding in this group. Although I imagine prescribing that second antiplatelet may still require cardiology approval in some trusts, it's worth knowing the growing evidence of the new antiplatelets as well as the dose adjustments required for elderly patients or those that are under 60 kg.
0: Yeah, I find it interesting, this is a constant battle, isn't it? I thought it was good that Prasugrel have a, a different dose for the elderly or those at risk, but actually it's almost more concerning that they still had a bigger bleeding risk, despite having that option to reduce their dose. And I think more and more we're realising that actually some, for many patients, the bleeding risk is actually pretty substantial and we really need to be thinking about it hard. So. Yeah, thanks, Alan. That's really good to get that data in in there. Sorry,
3: Barney, I I should have clarified that that higher risk was actually only in the 10 milligram once a day maintenance dose. So with the 5 milligrams maintenance dose, the risk of bleeding was the same.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. In comparison
3: to Ticagrelor. There we
0: go. All right.
1: Why are we still pursuing these like marginal gains in... Myocardial outcomes with these antiplatelet trials. I don't know. I...
3: So it's so we can feel smug when we say to the cardiology reg that actually I recommend Prasugrel in our 75 <laughs> year old patient. Yeah. Or oh, the drug
2: company is just trying to make something that they can patent.
3: Yeah, definitely. And what's the cost difference as well?
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks, thanks, guys. Great. Awesome. Thanks, Annalen. So, um, I think that's getting to the close to the end of the Journal Bites. But, Barney, I think you have something to fulfill our listeners' need for something sort of relatively, relatively irrelevant.
0: Irrelevantly relevant. Irrelevant. I, I do indeed. I've got a little something, something from the New England Journal of Medicine, which... Human and general medicine seems to have played quite a big role in in our podcast today, looking back. Now, we don't usually go through case studies, but I felt this one fit our rigorous selection process for a relatively relevant, relevant article and had some valuable lessons attached to it, of course. In a nutshell, American man has a VF arrest in a restaurant. Prolonged resuscitation, given the works, and they get return of spontaneous circulation. No significant past medical history, initially found to be very hypokalemic of unknown cause. Full workup ensues. His sodium was on the high side. His heart isn't working properly on an echo. He develops a metabolic alkalosis once his lactic acidosis resolves. On the spot, any thoughts? Crack journal spotting team? Low
1: potassium. Did you, ha- did you say high sodium? You did say yeah. high sodium. High sodium was a bit high, yeah. That's always the alarm bells, isn't it? So sounds like something related to excess steroid, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe an overdose on steroids. Is he a big guy?
0: Yeah, good guess. Good guess. I mean, I like what you're thinking. And you're on the same page as our US colleagues over there. After extensive House-esque investigations, a diagnosis of pseudo-hyper-aldosteronism was made. But I mean, what on earth was the cause? A little more digging and the all-important collateral history from his family. This patient eats a lot of candy. His particular favourite had always been fruit-flavoured soft candy. Very nice. A measly one to two large bags a day. But this changed three weeks previously to the licorice-flavoured type. I am sure that each of my, you know, journal-spotting team here and all of our omniscient listeners will instantly slap their foreheads and cry, of course. Because obviously, this is an absolute textbook case of
1: Glycer...
0: hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> Glutaric acid overdose, which is abundant in licorice, and causes a pseudo hyperaldosteronism by preventing the breakdown of cortisol. You then get unimpeded cortisol in the body, which increases to such an extent to cause severe hypokalemia, alkalosis, fatal arrhythmias, and renal failure. All of which this poor guy had, and yes, it proved fatal.
2: He died.
0: He, he died, poor guy. I know. Yeah. I didn't realise. <laughs> Sorry, Katie looks shocked. Like.
2: Could... God, I mean, he really was eating a lot of sweets. It's yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, you should
0: have with him before he got into hospital. That's right. That, and then. The <laughs> <laughs> i <was more> surprised how <laughs> someone could stomach <laughs> that much licorice. It's absolutely disgusting. <laughs> that is absolutely. <laughs> hey, man! Everyone's got different tastes. True. So, um, treatment options for this, guys? Well. Stopping eating licorice is generally advised, but the hypokalemia can take weeks to resolve, and the hypertension due to the broken RAA axis takes even longer to correct. But the outlook is usually good if the cause is realized. So, practice changing points from this. Don't eat candy. If you do, don't eat too much. If you do eat too much, and by that I mean one to two big bags a day, don't eat too much licorice. And the next time a hypertensive, hypokalemic patient staggers in, go on, ask about their candy consumption. One of these days, you may just hit the nail on the head. What is the, um, do we know the toxic dose of licorice? No. How much
1: licorice is too much licorice? Do we know?
0: I do not know, and that's a very good question. And that probably depends on what type of licorice and how much glycerinic acid is in it. Mm. and possibly on your renal function and things like that already.
1: Is there a warning label on licorice?
0: No, but there should be. I wonder if the family sued. It is America, for God's sake.
1: Gosh, something to look into. Anyways, that's brilliant. Thank you, Barney. Our first case study, and I think it was quite a good one. So uh, thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks for your hard work for digging out those articles. I'm sure we've got a lot of very satisfied listeners. Uh, We've covered a hell of a lot. Shall we do a quick fire review of what we've covered? Who was first?
0: That was me. That was me. That was colchicine. Money. Yeah, great colchicine. Looks like it. Um, it is beneficial in ischemic heart disease. May not improve survival.
2: I had SGLT two inhibitors making a second comeback for patients without diabetes as well.
1: Serve a coffee with the chemotherapy for patients with advanced colorectal cancer.
3: Turmeric is good for the knee as well for the curries.
2: There will be a
0: weekly insulin coming, it's called Icodec and please don't prescribe it every day.
2: If you are to see someone having an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and you can't get them to hospital, don't worry too much. They might just do better off for staying on scene.
3: Poking your patient on the side of the head to elicit that scalp tenderness might not be as useful as you think
0: for giant cell arteritis. Uh, Pollution kills and it kills tens of thousands of people for numerous different reasons across Europe. Um, so we should all be doing our part to try and improve it.
1: Opioids for patients with severe COTPD and refractory breathlessness: uh, no new significant evidence, but still recommended.
3: And if you're prescribing one of the new antiplatelets like Prasugrel, think about patients' age and weight.
0: And if you're going to insist on eating a shitload of candy, try not to try to avoid the licorice ones.
1: Lovely. Thank you very much, guys. That's been really fun. Oh, thank you. And uh, I think we've covered a lot
0: yeah thanks for having me great guys have a good evening take care all the best bye Bye. you have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts Dr Barnaby Hirons and Dr Jonathan Hudson today we were joined by the awesome Katia and Anlan information on today's show can be found on our website journalspotting.com on Twitter at journalspotting Facebook or Instagram special thanks goes to our logo lady Natalia and graphics man Costa If you liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave us a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. Your views expressed our opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests, and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how you treat your patients or yourselves.